HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today's program is being brought to us by Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. Today on A Taste of the Past, as usual, we're going to go on a a little journey through culinary history. And I think that probably anyone's first taste memory, I mean truly taste memory, is their very first taste of ice cream. It's cold and sweet and soothing, and usually, I don't know, people wait to see the thrill on a little child's face. Of what age? Who knows? I mean, that's, that all depends. But it's certainly something that one does not forget and one longs for. <laughs> the call of the ice cream truck. I mean, all kids run to the ice cream truck. And even today, when you hear that jingle of the ice cream truck, it sort of rings a little bell on the inside, doesn't it? But where did it come from? And why is it so irresistible? Well, today I have with me Laura Weiss, who's a food and travel journalist, and it was written for the New York Times, New York Daily News, Travel and Leisure, the Food Network website, many other print and online publications. Laura is an adjunct professor at NYU's Carter Journalism Institute, and she writes the New York City blog called foodandthings.com. And now she is an author, the author of Ice Cream, a global history. So welcome, Laura. Thank you. I'm excited because we have had a very slow, cold, rainy spring, and summer is, I know it's just around the corner. I can't wait. And I think ice cream is the one rare treat, especially that dripping ice cream cone in a super sunny, hot day. Tell me how much ice cream you ate while you were writing this book. Well, actually, this is sort of a funny story. Um, My chief ice cream taster was my husband. 
And the reason for that is um, I'm somewhat lactose intolerant, so I can only take small bites at a time. It's one of the great disappointments of oh. my life. <laughs> but there are a lot of alternatives today. There are. There are. I'm Yes, I eat soy ice cream and, and other things. And I also eat real ice cream, and then sometimes I pay for it <laughs> if I don't watch myself. But um, I tasted lots of different ice creams, uh, lots of soft ice creams, um, you name it. It, well, it, so through, so you had to have other people taste it for yeah, you. And that's yeah, yeah. Of course, right. it, but it's not really a recipe book or a tasting book. It's a history book, and in fact, right. you trace the the um, the history of ice cream f- from an Italian delicacy for the privileged in the 17th century. It says here in the blurb to a mainstream staple, and you talk about um, interesting. Uh, some interesting tales of the Chinese uh, supposedly being the first to invent ice cream uh, concocted with dragon eyeballs and camphor. Please, what is that about? Well, you know, obviously it was a very long time ago, thousands of years ago. Excuse me. And we don't really know what that's about. I tried to figure out what dragon eyeballs were, but (laughs) even with the internet, I came up uh, against, uh, you know, a... Uh, a wall. So, um, well, let, but tell me a little bit about when you when you were doing the research. What did you find as far as um, the genesis of this concoction? Okay. Well, the the Chinese, I guess, in a manner of speaking, came up with the first ice cream, and by that we mean they put together these, you know, exotic ingredients, and it was cold, and um, they ate it. Okay, but it really had bore no relationship to the ice cream we know today. Um, and the Japanese also um, built um, ice pits to store cold foods, possibly ice cream. But really, the very early history of ice cream begins in Italy and France. Um, and there, um, a bunch of chefs to mostly aristocratic households uh, started playing around with what was a very popular drink, which was uh, flavored um, ice water, basically. And, you know, slowly but surely came up with sorbet. Um, And, in fact, some people think that, you know, there were Italian nonas who were making it all over, you know, especially southern Italy. But these these chefs are the ones who are given the credit. And then somewhere along the line, and we don't know exactly when, somebody added some milk or cream and said, wow, this really tastes great. (laughs) At least I imagine (laughs) that's what they said. And they started adding what were then very exotic flavors like chocolate, which, you know, had just begun. That was be, at that time it was exciting. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Right. Imported and cinnamon and, you know, spices from the Far East and the New World. Um, and, you know, the rich and affluent totally loved it. Kings loved it. Queens loved it. Um, and it started slowly to take off. But it was way too expensive for common people because sugar and cream and all the ingredients were very, very costly. So well, it was really sugar, sugar indeed was, um, I mean, that was something that had to be imported. Well, Spain, you know, had sugar trade and, and India. And so that was an expensive ingredient right. for sure. Very, very, very. So it really stayed an elite dessert uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't really... In England, it started to become a dessert favored by the the sort of rising middle class in England in, I don't know, this 18th century, um, or even earlier than that. And there were some chefs who, um, women chefs actually, who actually worked for the royal household who then went out and wrote cookbooks and included recipes for ice cream. 
Um, but still, it was very labor intensive. You had to take two pots basically and shake them for God knows how long um, until you know you actually churned the ice cream. It was very hands on. Yeah. Well, if you look at some of the, the photos, you have some interesting photos in this book um, of some of the old machines and the apparatus and ice cream makers sitting right there where they sold it, make it, and sell it right from their their uh, pot but right. even um and there are some other things that i had seen some other machinery you know the buckets and the cranks and the right. and even today we still have we can still find some of the old you know a non-electric ice cream maker and it's not an easy process no it's not no not even with the hand cranked machine which mm-hmm. was the first real big technological leap in ice cream making but that didn't happen until 1840 uh, when Nancy so no Johnson wonder it was called a treat of kings right? yes yeah. exactly exactly Exactly. Um, Well, it made its way across the Great Pond, and wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's when things really started to take off. Um, There's an interesting story about New York ice cream, actually, which is um, that around the time of the Revolution in lower New York, the area we now call Wall Street, there were this... Uh, there was this whole collection of confectioners that made ice cream. And if you go back and look at the old ads, you think you're looking at ads for, you know, brokerage firms or maybe Morgan <laughs> Stanley or something. These guys were ferociously competitive in terms of the quality of the ice cream they were making and the pricing. And some of them actually were early franchisers. One of them went to Philadelphia and opened up a shop. So I guess New York's always been the center of entrepreneurship and business. <laughs> well, when when you were doing it and Still is right. Right, right. Um, when you were doing the research for this book, uh, what did you really focus on? Where, what, what can you tell people if they read the book? I mean, where, where was your focus on this? My main interest was how did this product, which started out as such a rarefied treat, turn into the most popular mass monarch market product in the world Mm -hmm. and basically there were several things that accounted for that um while the french and italians came up with the recipes it was the americans who really turned it into a worldwide treat they you know invented the ice cream crank manufacturing started here well we'll and we'll get on to some of the what happened you know in that process but first i want to talk about um, as you said, the, the Chinese being credited with being the first to make ice cream, but it doesn't have bore no relation whatsoever to what we know today. And yet, but the European, there are still a lot of European type of ice creams that exist today that were that existed then way in the 17, 18th, 17th and 18th century that are still more or less the same. Um, for instance, the gelato. Of course, gelato is so different than ice cream. And the Turkish ice cream. Talk, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting what's happening with gelato. Until, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe, you found gelato in Italy and in you know some European capitals. And it was handcrafted and... Um, you know, made with milk, not with cream, and had this very distinctive taste. But the most important thing was, you know, a family would, enterprise would run most uh, gelaterias. What's happened recently is gelato has spread around the world and taken on um, a coloration that you would never recognize as gelato. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ice cream uh, gelato places in New York where you can get, like, Captain Crunch gelato. <laughs> so... Um, even with gelato, it's not pure anymore. You can find it. I was just in Sicily, and I had the most amazing gelato I've ever eaten in my life. But 
even in Italy, um, they're using bases and um, mass producing it mm-hmm. much more than they used to. I remember the first taste I ever had of gelato was in 1968 in Italy, in Rome, and and there was a small vendor on the street with his cart, and it wasn't an Italian ice. I thought, oh, it's going to be an Italian ice. Because what did Americans know about gelato then? You know, so walk up and here's this wonderful hand rolled wafer cone. Not a wafer cone. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, the wafer cone. Yeah, right. And tiny, mm-hmm. probably not bigger than um, I don't know. Say you know my, my index finger down to my thumb. Tiny and narrow. And then he has this flat scoop, which they still use in the, in the gelato shops. Took a scoop of this incredible looking stuff put it on the top of the cone and then without even asking because i was didn't understand all that well at the time and i'm shaking my head sure 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 takes another scoop and puts on a dab equally of the same size of the ice cream of whipped cream on top of it i thought i had died and gone to heaven yeah it was the yes, best yes. thing i had ever eaten and dense and that's what they said gelato the, the true gelato has much less air in it it's right. a very dense um, right flavored Cream. Yeah, it's a, it's a different sensation. I mean, you you sort of identify it as ice cream in a generic sense, but it's definitely a different sensation. So if you look, you can still find it in Italy and, and places. Oh, and, yes. and people here yes. who still make it according to, you know, with the, the same machinery and according to the same yes. um, uh, yes. recipes. And so can yes, but I, one sort of interesting thing I did um, when I was writing about gelato was I Googled it and to see where there were gelato shops across the United States. They're everywhere. everywhere. Everywhere, right? Everywhere. Or they call it gelato even if it's not. That's my point. Yeah. In fact, I was walking down 23rd Street the other day, and I happened to look up, and there was a Blimpies that was advertising gelato. So, I don't know. It's like every pizza pizza shop has an Italian ice stand, right? Right, (laughs) right, right, right. Well, and then you you talked about the wonderful um, Turkish ice creams that are, right. are like that are so thick you say you have to cut it with a knife yeah yeah um those ice creams are made from an orchid root or there's an orchid root component they grind it up into powder and you know combine it with the milk and the you know the sugar and the other things and what and also with mastic and so it creates this very elastic ice cream mm. and i looked all over new york to see if i could find it if anybody knows if they'd let me know i'd love to taste it um but um, almost like a turkish almost like a turkish delight when it's yeah out, but not yeah frozen. yeah i'm not sure exactly how thick it is but apparently they uh these vendors in istanbul um have these huge knives and they just basically slice off a piece oh interesting it's, it's really yeah there are all sorts of interesting variations on ice cream all over the world yeah and um so so we i mean i've heard so many stories about who first brought it to america and obviously figure it's jefferson right. or or someone who was living over there but no and you say no well i mean jefferson was certainly a very early um popularizer of ice cream but the first uh, recorded mention of ice cream was in the early 1700s. Um, uh, the Maryland governor served it hmm. to a guest. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have it was here Actually, his before. Wife, his, I think it was, and it was his his wife. Yeah, his wife was right, probably right. <laughs> or the servants yeah. actually. Um, so it existed before Jefferson, and also George Washington was a complete ice cream freak. 
Hmm. When the U.S. Capitol was in New York in, I can't remember, 1790, something like that, Mm -hmm. he spent $200 in one summer on ice cream. My goodness. I mean, which was a a huge sum. But in 1790, that was just unbelievable. And you can go back and look at his diaries and at Mount Vernon, he goes on for pages about building um, ice huts and ice caves to store food, including ice cream. So, you know, Washington doesn't get enough credit when it comes to ice hmm. cream. And then, of course, Jefferson, you know, brought, you know, popularized vanilla ice cream. Who knows if he actually brought it back here? I mean, there's just no way of knowing It was that. just that he was such a Francophile and, and yeah, Europhile right, that, you right, know, that everything right. came back and was credited to him. <laughs> right, right. And obviously, he had a good publicist, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, um, that, of course, led to an increase in all kinds of things. You know, the ice trade, ice blocks, um, and, yes. and, and which then uh, spurred, spurred on the... Uh, yeah. The production. Yeah. Right? I mean, one of the things about ice cream is people think of it as this, you know, sort of fun street food, sweet, delicious. But technology played a huge role in its development. I mean, first, as I said, you know, there were ice houses. Even before that, they would bring ice down from the mountains. And then um, these ice kings developed mostly in cold parts of the United States, like in New England, who made fortunes um, out of carving ice up uh, out of rivers in New England, say, and shipping it all over the world for ice cream and for other things that needed to be kept cold or frozen. Mm -hmm. Um, Then by around the First World War, even a little before that, mechanization came in, refrigeration, you know, came in and was much better developed. And so the ice trade just sank. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, just like we see many things today, becoming obsolete, uh, the ice trade became obsolete. Well, it was such a desired specialty and treat that, um, particularly in New York, um, I know I've, I've seen the pictures and read backgrounds of pleasure gardens, yes. which the pleasure yes. gardens that developed around serving this wonderful nutrient. And this was the early night, this or mid 19th century. I well, think. even 18th century. Really? Yeah, yeah. The pleasure gar- well, pleasure gardens, I think, really began in England, but they took off here. And in one case I read about... Um, and and describe me what a pleasure garden... A pleasure, a pleasure garden. garden was a place you would go, um, and actually women could go there, which was unusual at the time for women to be able to go to public places to socialize. Basically, to drink and, you know, watch uh, fireworks go off and watch performers. And they were particularly popular during patriotic celebrations like the So it was, it was an outside park. It, usually, yeah, usually it was an outside park. Yeah. I mean, it, they may have had some kind of enclosure. Um, and in one case, uh, for a July 4th celebration, I can't remember exactly when this was. It was around... Uh, 1800, maybe a little before, they talk about serving ice cream at this pleasure garden. And the reason they were serving it was because this was such an an important occasion, such a happy one. And so ice cream very early became associated with patriotism, uh, the U.S. I mean, a lot of people think, um, you know, ice cream was invented here. It was American, here. right? Like apple uh, pie. Right, <laughs> exactly. When it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't. Right, right. Um, well, it certainly, for so. a festive occasion, certainly did bring a smile to people's faces, as yes. it still does. Ice cream does bring a smile to people's faces. Well, we're going to talk about the... Uh, the production and the big business of ice cream when we come back after a short break.
following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to Greenhorn Radio, hosted by Severin Von Scharner Fleming, every Thursday at 2 p.m. Greenhorn Radio is radio for young farmers by young farmers. Helmed by acclaimed activist, farmer, and documentarian Severin Fleming, Greenhorn Radio is a weekly phone interview session surveying America's cutting-edge under-40 farmers. Again, that's every Thursday at 2 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. We are back enjoying the stories of ice cream with Laura Weiss, um, author of Ice Cream, A Global History. And Laura, uh, we were... I, I wanted to talk about the um, big business of ice cream and the, how the production of ice cream took off. But you had mentioned something during the break about people when it did become popular in the east on the coast, in the east coast, uh, particularly of America, that people in rural areas did not have it and were suspicious. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, you know, ice cream obviously took off first in the big cities um, where there were people with some money and a little more, you know, perhaps culinary sophistication. Um, When it started to spread throughout the country, people in rural areas, some people anyway, were extremely suspicious. You know, they would swallow this cold stuff and it would just feel really, really weird for them. So it took a while to sort of take off. It was an unfamiliar... I mean, they didn't like that brain freeze. They didn't like that brain freeze. (laughs) And you can read these old newspapers where people are saying, oh, what is this? You know? <laughs> help, help, I don't, and spitting it out. Yeah. I mean, it sort of seems amazing today. But um, but this was a very new, you know, mouthfeel, if you will, mm-hmm. and, you know, sensation for people. So it didn't instantly, in all cases, <laughs> you know, take off, or people didn't instantly fall in love with it. Well, you know, for... All the times that I've used the phrase in, in writings and in, in, in broadcasts, I learned something from your book that I didn't realize. Ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. And Howard Johnson was one of the 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 people credited with developing no, that that's phrase? a different Howard Johnson. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know, Boy, you confused. had me completely Right, fooled. right, right. No, no, no. A different Howard Johnson. <laughs> okay. Well, it, you do, and we all know that phrase. I just thought that was kind of cute. Um, you credit the truck and, and the motor industry with helping develop ice cream. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Okay, well. In two ways it did that. Um, just to back up a little bit, the first real street vendors were what were called hokey pokey men. Mm-hmm. Mostly they were men. They weren't all Penny men. ice creams. Right. Yeah. Penny ice creams. They were barely ice cream. They were more like ice milk. You probably took your life in your hands when you ate them. Well, in fact, um, they were outlawed because of, yeah, it, yeah. Was a, it used the same glass. They'd rinse out the glass. Right. And, right. 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 I'm sure today's public health departments would not like this practice at all but for Um, a penny you got a sweet cold treat exactly and that was one of the ways that ice cream became a you know much more of a mass market product because it was cheap and it was easily available and everyone could afford a penny or almost everyone um and then if you fast forward to the turn of the century there were a bunch of inventors who came up with novel ways of serving ice cream and one of them was a guy named burton who invented the good humor bar Um, oh yeah which we, I think everybody knows. Um, and, you know, it's a chocolate-covered bar on a stick. And he also came up with the brilliant idea that the way to distribute it was 
you know, on a truck. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure many of us remember the good humor truck coming through the neighborhood. I remember it as a small child when, again, I had this problem with dairy and I couldn't eat it. And it is one of the most Aww. painful memories of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the, the other way in which um, the automobile contributed to the growth of ice cream uh, was in the post-war period in the 1950s. And Howard Johnson was just key in this development. And, you know, people don't talk about him too much anymore mm-hmm. with his 28 flavors because, you know, Ben and Jerry's came along and, you know. Well, they, they think more about how he advanced into real estate and, and hotels. Right, so, exactly. You know, they don't think about you know, his role in ice cream. But right. he really, his first love was ice cream. And if you, uh, you know, read clips, old newspaper clips, you can see how he designed his business to follow the World War II veterans out to the suburbs. So the first Howard Johnson shops were, for example, in Manhattan, and then they went to the boroughs, and then they went out to Long Island, and there was one near Levittown, and these Howard Johnson restaurants, which also had other foods, obviously, like fried clams, um, had parking lots in some cases that were bigger than the shop. So in other words, he knew that people wanted to drive to his establishments to eat his ice cream and his other food. Um, so the aha moment. Right, the aha <laughs> moment. So then in the, his other amazing contribution was he really fought to be the... Um, not the vendor, but the the provider on the emerging interstate system. Um, So that when you were cruising down the Pennsylvania Turnpike and you went over the crest of a hill and you saw that orange roof, you would think, yeah, Yeah. fried clams and ice cream. And for years, he just dominated that market. Um, And even people, it was so successful, even people like President Eisenhower invested in a Mm -hmm. Hojo's, as they were known. Right, Hojo's. Um, Then they went into decline uh, as people started traveling more widely, and uh, there were some some problems in the 60s with, you know, uh, some Hojo's in the South and efforts to desegregate. But Howard Howard Johnson, for all his, you know, uh, thinking about, you know, the people who wanted to drive just to come and get the ice cream, he did not start... The car hop. I mean, he didn't serve the cars in the parking lots, though. Did no, he? No, no, he just, no, 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 no. I didn't think he didn't. No, his cream was no. credited with that. But. No, I'm starting in the 1930s, but again, really taking off after the war were these freestanding ice cream, you know, stands. Some of which still exist. I go to one near my summer place on the North Fork. I go to two actually. Um, a lot of them are now gone, um, and they had these, you know, fantastic. Um, you know, decorations with huge ice cream cones out mm-hmm. in front, and you know, the idea was you were gonna you were driving down the road and you'd see this flamboyant shop, and it would scream ice cream. It would be hot. You'd be, be hungry. Hot. You'd see this dripping picture of this wonderful cone, mm-hmm. right? And the kids would be screaming. It still works today. It still works today. Still works today. And so you'd pull over and you'd get either you know hard ice cream or soft ice cream, which was. You know, another huge trend in the post-war period. It just, right. Soft ice cream just became huge. Did you, um, I, what about the invent, if, invention, if you will, of soft ice cream? I've heard a lot of tales, and I'm not sure how much of it is folklore yeah. and how much of it is actual truth. Well, supposedly the Core brothers um, invented it at Coney Island. Um, and also, I should add that... Um, 
Good Humor's headquarters was in was in Brooklyn. I don't yeah, know that's exactly fun. where. Yeah, yeah, it is fun. But anyway, um, the Core Brothers invented um, supposedly soft ice cream in Coney Island, and apparently people were lined up like around the block. <laughs> All right, now you tell me if you heard any. I heard a story, and it was I guess I think it was more from. The Midwest, I don't know, it was Grader's, a story from their shop in, in Ohio or, or what, right. that someone was delivering ice cream I don't from a truck, and the truck broke down. The ice cream started to melt, and so he started, this man just started serving it from the truck, and it was half melted and said, hey, everyone liked it so much, maybe we'll make it soft. I don't know where that came who, from. <laughs> who knows? That's possibly true. I mean, one of the things about ice cream is there are five tales for the invention of anything. If you ask who invented the sun day you'll get five different versions so who knows that could have been going on at the same time or a year earlier a year later and never have gone on i mean well that's what we were talking about before the show too is that there's all this controversy as to who was first the chinese were first no the french were first no the italians were first you know as many things do happen there they may have sprung up simultaneously in different exactly. parts of the world you know exactly it was, it was a time it was time for a cold treat you know? exactly exactly i mean the sunday's a perfect example of that there's a town in wisconsin and ithaca new york and they've had this sort of you know good-natured battle, battle <laughs> over who invented the sunday first nobody knows nobody will ever know and, and who cares, who cares? Right. right as long as we can get it <laughs> yeah do you have any figures and i'm sorry to spring this on you because i didn't ask you before you know dollar amount figures and production what what the what kind of business it is today oh it's enormous um let me see if i can find it quickly but in no it's i mean u.s is the leading um well it depends on what list you look at it's either the u.s or australia that's um, usually cited as the leading ice cream but you know it's, country. Well, it's funny because we went on that full circle, as so many foods in, in the food industries were. It was a wonderful treat, and people enjoyed it, and it was handmade. And then we went to big business, and then it was kind of destroyed and mm-hmm. mechanized. Now we're coming full circle again. We have That's all right. these artisanal ice creams, wonderful handmade products. Or, I mean, not handmade necessarily, but small production. Yes. Wonderful flavors and real good quality ice creams. I'm so glad that we've come full circle. Oh, yeah. That's, that's yeah. Really, it's yeah. really wonderful. It, it's great. I mean, that trend started in maybe the 80s. Yeah. Um, but it really took off in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. And, yeah, today we have it's, – it's interesting how everything comes full circle. Um, and what's also interesting is that these uh, small batch ice creams, and I'm sure this is not always the case, but they tend to be somewhat costlier yes, they do. than what you buy in the supermarket. So, again, it's becoming a product that – it's, you know, expensive, and you have to have the money to be able to buy it. Right. So, yeah. And I mean, like, you know, growing up in a family with four kids, and, you know, we, we, our treat on the weekend would be a half a gallon of iced milk. You know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Just pour a lot of Hershey's syrup on top of it, yeah. and it tastes well, okay. A lot of us grew up with that, you yeah. know, Briars or whatever from the supermarket, and sure. we all loved it. Sure. Um, you know, and this new trend is um, really fabulous, and people are coming up with amazing flavors and combinations of flavors and, and mix-ins uh, and, and mix-ins you know, yeah. and mix-ins so well no matter what form you get your ice cream in it is certainly a pleasurable treat and it yes. was a pleasure to talk to you laura well, thank I you really so much appreciate you coming on. in the book is oh and i want to mention you're going to be doing a um, the book is called ice cream a global history 
And on June 6th, Laura will be presenting um, some information from her book and an all-ice cream dinner. And that is going to be at the Roger Smith Hotel. And you can um, access that online at theedibleseries.com? Yeah, edibleconversations. Edibleconversations.com. Thanks again. And once again, this has been Linda Palaccio for A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is behind. This is behind the scenes food news with Katie Kiefer. I learned recently that the FDA is expanding on subtherapeutic antibiotic use. This came to me via the Food Safety News email blog or newsletter, however you want to call it. Um, and I urge people to check this out. It's a really it's a great production. Um, and this particular article uh, informed me that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has revealed new detail about how antibiotics are used in animal agriculture, an issue of growing controversy in food policy and public health circles. According to the FDA, approximately 74% of antibiotics given to food animals are administered subtherapeutically through feed and another 16% through water, with only 3% of antibiotics being administered through injections, which would imply the injections are when an animal is actually sick and the only time they really should be getting subtherapeutic or they should be getting any antibiotics. Subtherapeutic antibiotics, I also learned are part of what helps animals convert food to fat or muscle faster, and which is why they're so popular in the animal ag sector. Um, in the le- in a letter late last week, the FDA released this breakdown for the first time to Congresswoman Louis- Louise Slaughter, uh, the Democrat from New York, and the only microbiologist serving in Congress who has taken the lead on curbing the use of antibiotics in agriculture to slow growing antibiotic resistance. Now, you can go on and on, and there's a lot of uh, information out there about this. It's also worth um, worth recognizing that there are studies which say uh, there is no transmission of antibiotics uh, through animal tissue into human tissue through consumption. But um, I wasn't finding a whole lot of those studies, and I was finding an awful lot of studies that were saying the reverse. So uh, though the jury is out on the use of subtherapeutic antibiotics, um, I think we can expect to hear a lot more controversy, and I think everyone should raise their voice in concern. And it's a great example of know your farm know your food, know where you're getting your chow. That's it for today with Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Cooper. Nicole Taylor is always the first to talk with new and exciting personalities in the food world on her show, Hot Grease. Check out a little clip. Everything is super sweet in the Heritage Radio Network studios today. We're chatting with Fanny Gerson. Fanny is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America and the 2011 James Beard Foundation Cookbook Award nominee. Oh, my God. We fry in bed style. We have to talk dough. 
donuts. I'm going to have to say, Fanny, I don't know if you know this. I was definitely the first person in Brooklyn to start talking about it. <laughs> Did you know that? I, I knew that last time I saw you, ah. but I didn't know that before. So we have to talk dough. I mean, it, it is it is a bona fide phenomenon in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm so excited to be part of it, I, and I can't believe it. <laughs> you know? I mean, I was just telling you before the show that uh, I think about a month ago, I went to dough on a Sunday at 2 o'clock, and all the donuts you like what you hear? You can hear Hot Grease every Monday at 3.30 p.m. live on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast or check it out in our archives.